Okay. So today we're going to talk finance. I have one of my good friends here. He's a financial analyst for Wells Fargo. He also has a blog where he shares his insights on the economy. It's called deepdivefinance.ca. Dante, how's it going? Hey, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem at all. Uh, I just want to ask you where we're at. Honestly, let's just get the full synopsis from you. Yeah, I think we have to go back to March of 2020 to really see how things have played out. So if you remember back then, the big scare was deflation when we had the first set of lockdowns. Uh, as everyone expected, demand to crash to the floor. And the initial response was deflation, of course, because demand reacted very quickly, a lot faster than supply does. As you had economies shutting down, you had people with uh, no money. But the thing is, is that the governments reacted so quickly with fiscal and monetary stimulus that anyone could have seen that we were going to have inflation. It's just that it was going to take some time to play out. The deflationary scares were oil trading below $20 a barrel and even going negative one day. And so no one was really worried about inflation. But in the meantime, in the background, you had governments running massive record uh, budget deficits, printing money essentially to give it to people who weren't working. And we had interest rates at 0% once again. And so you saw all these businesses shutting down production, uh, food plants, uh, oil companies going out of business. So all these supply, all the supply being drained at the same time that demand was being artificially stimulated. And then once you've re once you've seen these economies reopen, the stimulus has been serving as a, a, ma a massive excess and you've had uh, dramatically reduced supply. So that, that imbalance has caused a sharp uptick in inflation. And the, the states started to see this earlier than Canada. If you look at where they reopened from their COVID lockdowns a lot earlier. So their inflation rates are actually uh, a little bit higher, but Canada's caught up pretty quickly. Um, so if you fast forward to two years later, now we're bearing the brunt of all the policy decisions that we made two years ago. And it's really, really starting to kick us in the rear now. Uh, if you look at the situation right now, we have the CPI at over 8%, making a 40-year high. The CPI is the most watched consumer price inflation index that the central banks keep track of. So this index is being pushed not just by one or two things, although oil is uh, very elevated and so is food, everything pretty much. I mean, everyone knows that you, can, you can't really think of a single thing that the price hasn't gone up a lot in the last two years. So the situation we're in now is basically um, high, broad inflation. And now we've had since the beginning of the year, all these central banks and governments saying they're going to get tough on inflation. They're raising interest rates. They're pulling back some of the money supply. And now what you're seeing is you're seeing a slowdown in demand for discretionary goods. Um, so anything other than necessities. So you won't, you won't be seeing a slowdown in food or energy, in my opinion. Those things are going to keep going up or, or stay where they are. But you are seeing a slowdown in demand for discretionary goods, such as couches, TVs, electronics, things that are not like necessary at the present day. And another important thing is that retailers are having a massive inventory build. So if you look at, I have a chart in front of me, it's Walmart's 12-year inventory balance sheet figures. So typically Walmart will see uh, the holiday season. So their, their Q4 have a big spike in inventory. And then the rest of the three quarters, it will normalize around the historical trend for the last 10 years has been about 45 million, sorry, 45 billion of inventory value. We're now not even in the holiday season. We're in the middle of the year and we're sitting at 60 billion in inventory on Walmart's balance sheet. Part of this is due to 
their weighted average cost. So they're accounting uh, book cost of inventory going up quite a bit. But a lot of this is due to the fact that they've had um, inventory buildups uh, due to backlog. So a lot of their fills have just come in in the last few months. So you've seen a lot of volume sitting on their in, in their shelves. While at the same time, consumers are tapped out and there's not enough credit for them to go borrow into infinity to buy. So you're seeing, so Target is in the same situation and they're actually announcing big price cuts and discounts. Um, so what you're going to probably see, in my opinion, in the next six months is you're going to see some disinflation. So inflation is going to come down. It's going to be due to discretionary goods. This is not going to override the long-term trend of rising inflation. And with that, when you, what you're then going to see is that you're probably going to see the Fed the Bank of Canada, the government's pivot and say, hey, look, we we tamed inflation, uh, but now we're in a recession and it's really bad. So we're going to have to we're going to have to reverse course. We're going to drop rates back to zero and start quantitative easing, start printing money again. And that's only going to cause an even greater inflation cycle, um, probably by 2024, 2025, when you get that uh, recovery in the economy. So this is just like a cycle that could keep playing out over the next 10 years. And it's something that's really hard to overcome like you look at any inflationary uh one more point on this you look at any inflationary cycle the 1940s in the united states uh is actually pretty similar in 1940 they had 1.5 percent inflation 1941 11.4 percent 1943 three percent then by 1946 18 percent then by 1949 they actually had minus two percent they had deflation so this is kind of what I, I expect, like some wild swings in inflation. But overall, the, the trend is we're going to see higher prices over this decade. Yeah. And then also just taking a look at housing, we haven't seen quite the, the increase in that as the CPI, but uh, it's a finite supply. And the, the income that people make compared to what they used to versus the housing price is just absolutely outrageous. How do you think Canada can, can survive and what do you think has happened to cause this? Yeah, it is absolutely outrageous. I mean, to cause it is a lot of factors. Canada specifically has so many zoning laws that makes it hard to build, especially uh, in the GTA and in the greater Vancouver area where there's a lot of protected lands. And there's also just so many laws and regulations like preventing buildings of new supply. That's one part of it. But, you know, uh, influx of uh, immigration into the same few cities. There's nothing wrong with immigration, but when you have everyone concentrated in the same three or four cities, that's going to, of course, push up prices, and then it's going to start building suburbs where prices get pushed up. You've had interest rates previously low at you know 5,000 year lows, pretty much for from the period from 2010 to about 2020. So we've had very high borrowing. Um, you know, a multitude of things have caused this run up in the, in the Canadian housing market, but it is, of course, completely unsustainable when you have the price to income ratios, housing price to salary, right, in, in Canada, just astronomically higher than any other country in the world, except for maybe China, but we're not sure about uh, the numbers. But yeah, it, it's, it is it's really crazy, but you are starting to see a slowdown. I think Vancouver is on pace for a 40% drop uh, this year in the average home, home price in Vancouver. And right. that's not necessarily going to happen. Like, I, I mean, that would be amazing if that actually happened. I, I, I don't think that there'd probably be a record of some sort. I think, but even yeah, if- I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they, they stopped allowing foreign buyers and a lot, a lot of Vancouver's homes were owned by foreign people. Yeah, that's definitely an, an, 
and in, uh, input into all of it. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of like trust just buying up homes that no one lives in. And that's that specific more to Vancouver. I, I believe like Toronto doesn't have that same issue quite as much, but overall, like the, probably the, the greatest factor right now is just, you know, interest rates are rising so fast that your monthly payments are just, some people's monthly payments are doubling. I mean, I don't know how you can support that when your wages are hardly going up with the rate of inflation. And then your monthly payment on your mortgage is doubles in six months. So that's, that's definitely causing a lot of this. uh, There's, there's, I mean, there's anecdotal evidence online. You can look at people's listings and just see like price cut after price cut after price cut. And I'm sure uh, you, you could see this firsthand too with the industry you're in, but um, there's definitely a slowdown in real estate, whether it turns into a full-blown crash is it's anyone's guess. But I mean, if the, if it does, there's a, there's a potentially an opportunity to, if the central banks pivot and go back to low interest rates where you could potentially buy a discounted house at a cheap interest rate, you could lock in for maybe 10 fixed years. The only problem is if we get an actual severe housing crash, like a 2008 US style crash, like I don't even think you'll be able to get a mortgage. So it's just a sticky situation. It's it's not the greatest situation for prospective buyers, but. Right. I also want to kind of talk to you about currency and the future of it, uh, specifically cryptocurrency. Uh, what place do you think Bitcoin or some sort of central bank di- digital currency will take place in the next 10 years? Well, those two are, I, I would classify in separate categories, although the central banks want to pretend like the, 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 the digital currencies are similar to a cryptocurrency. The appeal of it is that it's a, you know, it's a free market currency. It's, it's not centrally planned. The problem is a lot of them actually are. So Bitcoin, for example, actually is a decentralized currency. There's no, as far as anyone knows, there's no overseer who can manipulate the supply of Bitcoin. But if you look at all these, and, and I, I, I like Bitcoin's fundamentals long-term, but it, it has clearly been a speculative mania that's a bubble that's been popping dramatically. I mean, it's down 70% from the high. But the problem is not even Bitcoin, it's the altcoins. Like a lot of these coins that, you know, there's one guy who can just create as many coins as he wants. That's, there's a lot of those are scams and you can see all these coins with the rug pull. Like overall, I think the crypto industry is getting a bad rep in some respects because there's so many scams in these altcoins, but you just have to really, you know, what to look out for. I mean, like a good comparison, I know it's not a, you know, digital asset, but the gold mining industry, there's so many scams. Like, you know, all these like executives that sell stories that are just completely fabricated and they 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 win over people's hearts and then they raise fifty million dollars for exploration in northern Vancouver or northern BC. And then there's no gold there. And it turns out the whole thing was a scam. <laughs> so you know it's not it's not fair to then say, oh well bear gold, well that's a scam too. It's not see it's just like when you're comparing Bitcoin to Shiba Inu, I mean, you can't really, that's not really a fair comparison. I do think there's a role for decentralized currencies. And if you look at, especially the more third world countries where their banking systems are completely uh, unstable and they can't trust their own currency, like uh, you could take a Venezuela or a Turkey, you know, these, these, these are the kind of countries that are going to opt for something like a digital currency that you can send um, without any central authority manipulating it, and you can send it worldwide. You know, you can use the the blockchain to just send your Bitcoin to someone either within your own country or to another country, and no one has to approve yeah. that transaction. Not, not to mention on the weekends as well, like twenty four hours exactly. a day. Exactly. 
yeah, that's that's a trend that's going to be um, continuing as well. Even the banks are are going to most likely start looking at um, this technology. I mean, they've already invested so much money into it because they realize that the the current system of like you know the two day period of settlements closing sometimes even longer for international transactions could be as long as, as five days. You know, that's it's not necessarily as efficient. They still want to have some oversight into the transactions, but as far as central bank digital currencies, these are completely separate um, vehicles. I don't want to get into too much of the, of the politics around it, but basically these are going to be um, issued by the central bank. And if they do it the way that they've kind of described it previously, you'll have a wallet with the central bank directly, either that or potentially one of the you know, commercial banks, retail banks, um, the intermediaries. But this is basically going to be a way for the central bank to really take more control over their own currency because up until recent years, you know, since probably 1970, um, a lot of money creation actually happens in the private sector where banks lend. So this is something, it's a kind of a concept that people get confused with, but when a bank lends into the economy, they're lending against reserves on a fractional basis. So let's say, let's say the bank has a million dollars of bank reserves, right? They don't actually lend out these reserves. What they do is when they create a loan, if they create a $10 million loan, and that's the only loan they have, you have now a 10 to one loan to reserve ratio. That $10 million is, 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 is new money into the economy. It's deposited into your account, but it's basically a liability that is created out of thin air, it's just an Excel spreadsheet entry. It's not actually, they're not using the reserves to loan out. So because of this, the central banks have had less control than people actually think over the supply of money. Um, but now that they're having these debt monetization where the government borrows and the central bank buys the bonds, this has restored quite a bit of control. And the central bank digital currency is the ultimate way for them to uh, control the money supply and, and set their monetary policy the way they see fit. Right. Yeah. And then not to mention everything is going to be traceable, right? Everything can be tracked down to what the source. Yeah. The, 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 the blockchain technology can be used for um, exact tracing and they can see exactly like, you know, where the money went, like what it was spent on. I know you can make the argument, well, like credit cards are already like that, but the thing is uh, they're not stored in a central database. Like Visa is not compelled to, you know, disclose every single transaction, although they may, it's still more decentralized because you have all these credit card companies. They're not just one government entity like overseeing everything. Uh, What you will see though, as far as central bank digital currencies is you will see different different countries competing, especially among this new alliance of the the Eastern countries versus the Western countries where you have China and Russia, Iran and India. They're going to most likely, they're going to start pegging or using maybe China's central bank digital uh, currency. And then that's going to be the digital currency that fluctuates around over on the East side of the world. So that's going to be something to watch. That's going to be interesting. Right. And then that, it will change a lot of how banking is done, but that's mm-hmm. something that I don't think is, you know, in the next five years, this is something that, that will take a long time. This infrastructure that is built right now, it does take quite a bit of time to change. Yeah. And do you think that it's possible in the next, you know, five to 20 years that there's going to be just one currency for the entire world? No, I don't think so because you're you're always going to have some uh, countries that are going to be fighting for their own sovereignty. If you have one currency, only one currency that just dominates ninety plus percent, I mean, you do have the U.S. dollar that dominates world trade, but at the end of the day, 
most countries still have their own currency. Yeah, if you want to do trade in oil in the Middle East, you're probably going to have to use U.S. dollars. Um, most offshore banks lend in U.S. dollars, so that is true. But a lot of countries, I mean, they can make the choice, the elective choice like Ecuador did to just start dollarizing. problem is you lose monetary sovereignty. And when you lose monetary sovereignty as a nation, uh, monetary policy autonomy and monetary sovereignty, you, uh, you can't really make decisions in the own interest of your own country. So I don't really see that playing out. I think, yeah, some countries will adopt this through international treaties. But I mean, I could definitely, I could not see the US and Russia agreeing, especially with the way things have gone in the last five months. So um, with all the sanctions and whatnot, I, I, I don't, I could see that happening on a localized basis in some regions, but I couldn't see the entire world on a mass scale having one dominant currency where no country has their own sovereign currency. Okay, true. And uh, I wanted to ask you about, you know, in, in these turmoil times uh, when there's a lot of affl- inflation, what are you looking at to like invest in? What, what, would, what would be a safe, kind of a safe haven in these times? Yeah, this is right now. I mean, if you look at the price action this year, you have, let's look at the U S markets, the S and P down 20%. Uh, the Dow Jones about the same 20%. The NASDAQ, which is tech heavy, is down about, I think, about 25 to 30%. Tech stocks have really gotten beaten up, but they were the biggest winners during the, the COVID stay-at-home time. So they've kind of just given up their gains, in some cases, more. So not really blood in the streets, but, I mean, it's been a pretty pretty sharp down year for these, for these stocks, especially the money losers. I mean, they've actually had blood in the streets if you look at a company like uh, Spotify or, or something like that. Yeah. But um, – the the key in the stock market is is volatile. It goes up and down. The key is the bond market getting really killed. I think it's had its worst year in at least fifty years. That's the key because that's the bond market's considered the hedge against a stock market crash. But this year, when you have rates and inflation like skyrocketing, you have the bond market selling off. So pension funds falling. So you know there are some deals out there you could start looking at in some of the technology names that have really beaten up, you know, really beaten up that are like good value buys, like maybe Google's down, I think about 30%. You could start looking at stocks like that, but um, I would tread water carefully here. There still could be plenty of downside. As far as a hedge against all of this, you look at oil up 50% this year, you know, it could come, it could come down. It's been, had a lot of momentum. It could be, it could, it could have like a correction, but that's been the best hedge has been oil commodities in general. Corn is up 20% this year. Um, so these, these industrial agricultural and uh, oil commodities have really shone this year, especially with the, the war in Russia and all the constraints and, and uh, sanctions going on in the world. So really commodities have been the play here. And that's something that I expect to keep going on for the next, for the, for the next five to 10 years uh, buy those dips on the commodities. Again, it's not financial advice, but uh, just my thoughts. Um, the traditional hedge against inflation has been gold. And while it hasn't dropped, I mean, the gold's about flat on the year. So if you've ha- held your money in gold, you've been even, which is not nearly as bad as the stock or bond market. Gold hasn't broken out and really gone on the run you'd expect it to. But the, the gold market's a tricky one because it's all based on future inflation and interest rate expectations. And a lot of big money investors still expect um, the Fed to get things under control and tame this beast. But look for gold to really go on a run to the upside if 
confidence. The key with gold is confidence. So if confidence really gets lost in the Fed's ability to tame inflation, then I think you'll see gold double, triple in a single year. That's when that's when the momentum will really start. So gold is a good asymmetric bet and a hedge against like total mismanagement and uh, and fear. That's where I think gold plays a role. Um, as far as cryptocurrencies, I mean, it's pretty been much been debunked that they're a hedge against inflation. They're really just a speculative bet on on adoption of a network. So, you, I mean, you see Bitcoin down 70% this year, not a hedge against inflation. Yeah, so really the best hedge against inflation is commodities like oil, because those are the things that go up. I mean, you're, you're buying things and those things are, are produced by commodities or you're eating the commodities. So buying companies that produce these commodities, such as an oil stock, that would be your best bet. Um, to actually hedge against inflation, to hedge against just total lack of confidence and loss of trust to be would be precious metals. Uh, I would the stock market is going to be a buy here at some point here, but uh, definitely would tread carefully and just have some money on the side and just wait it out and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you a little bit about digital property too, not necessarily just NFTs, but I've been seeing like investment companies putting you know millions of dollars into these. NFT or these real digital real estate. So I don't know if you're actually going to be living in it or you can just say you have it on your computer, but (laughs) I mean, does this have to be tied to the metaverse? Like what, do you know anything about this? Yeah, I think this one's a weird one because it's like, it's all based on people's, you know, judgment. It's like, it's kind of like the art market where like you look at a piece of painting and like, I may think it's a piece of crap, but someone else might like it for $15 million. So, um, you know, the appeal of NFTs actually, from what I've read, I'm not, it's not something I've done too much work into, but the right of ownership and, and the, the ability to prove that it's actually yours. Cause the problem with a painting is that, um, it may not be possible to 100% verify that you created that, that piece of painting, but with a digital, uh, art or digital house or anything in that NFT ecosystem, I guess the best, you know, quality of it is that you can verifiably 100% prove who created this and who owns it. So that that could definitely be something that's useful in terms of like proof of verification and, and transfer of ownership in the future. I saw, I think Snoop Dogg um, trying to incorporate this into music somehow with buying and selling albums online. I think it's interesting, but it's something that like, will definitely spark bubbles. And I mean, you saw it with NFTs, like pictures of apes going for a million dollars that crashed like 50, but that doesn't mean that, you know, just because there's a speculative mania, it doesn't mean the underlying, um, some of the underlying like qualities aren't good. I mean, the same thing happened in the late nineties with some of these tech stocks that a lot of them went bankrupt, but then you had like a few like Microsoft that, that came out and took over the world. So you can always you always have to try to look underneath the rug and see what's actually there rather than just like falling into the hype. But I think yeah, digital real estate, I don't know exactly how that works, but I I would presume that the the right and transfer of ownership and ability to prove who owns what and who sold and bought what, I think that's probably the most appealing factor from what I've read. Mm-hmm. And then just speaking more on technology, like Tesla is a technology company, I guess, not just a car company. But they are worth or have been worth more than every other big car company combined. 
And meanwhile, I don't even think they turned a pure profit any year. Can you can you explain this like a little bit? Like what? Why? Yeah, actually, whether or not they've turned a profit is up for debate in the last year. I mean, there's some people who think they did, and I'll get into this. But Tesla historically never turned a profit unless it was able to use its regulatory credits, which are government handouts for uh, not quote unquote releasing emissions. So they would get like they would stack them up. They'd get a billion to five billion worth, and then they, onto their balance sheet and start selling them off to. So they would sell, let's say, a hundred million dollars worth of these things in a quarter to Ford. That's one hundred percent profit because they didn't pay for it. So it's it's a grant, right? It's basically a grant. So that's how they were showing a profit on their balance sheet for a while, and then they had these Bitcoin profits on mark to market gains. So uh, they have never had actually in previous in some of the more recent quarters. I think they've showed a very small operating profit on their on their sale of cars. But like I said, that's up for debate because some people don't trust the numbers and think they're, you know, a little bit fudged. So I think people, when they look at Tesla, they're looking at their image of Tesla is by 2040 or some year down the line, we're going to have this world where over half of all the cars are Teslas and a Tesla robot drives you to like, picks up your burger and brings it to you. Or I don't know. Some people have some crazy fantasies about this. And I think, I just don't think Tesla any, has any proprietary technology. Like they don't have any, pat, they don't really have any patents. Like they could be copied easily. They have plenty of competitors that are going to be right at their throats. I mean, you got all these companies like Porsche and BMW and even I think Ford, like all these companies are, are, are getting ready with EVs. Yeah, they're a little bit behind the curve, but doesn't mean they can't catch up and really like the legacy car companies are, are, are still here and they're going to find a way to like keep their foot in the game here. I think it's crazy that, a company that has sold less than 5% of all the cars in the last year in the United States, which is the biggest car market in the world, uh, is worth, I don't know if it still is today. I think it might be worth more than all the other car companies combined in terms of market capitalization. You know, there's some really crazy like out there. Yeah, Tesla probably has a chance to grow in the future. Like I'm not bearish on the company going bankrupt necessarily. But it doesn't mean right. that you you value it as this like godlike company where it has an over trillion dollar market cap. Like it's not even close to the same level as Apple or Google or Microsoft. I would I would say not even close. It's a car company. I mean, like yeah. car companies are are they're they're hard to run. They, they're not they ha- they're very cyclical. They're not um you know it's it's a it's a tough business. It doesn't matter if it's EV or not. Yeah, like doesn't Apple alone have more cash on hand than like most countries? Like their top 10 if they were a country like something crazy like that yeah i believe apple if you count um their t-bills which is cash equivalents which is where most of their, their cash is about but the most recent quarter was over 180 billion us dollars of cash so but apple has is, has hit a maturity stage where they are just trying to they're still trying to eke out some growth but really um a lot of their cash is going into stock buybacks. So they have such a big cash position because they have so much free cash flow. I think in 2021, they netted about 70 billion of free cash flow, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, I mean, they don't even know where to invest it. They just, it's such a cash cow machine. Same thing with a company like Google. So you have these mega tech companies that are just making unbelievable amount of profit. And then they don't really know where to invest the excess anymore. They're just, buying back stock. 
they don't want to pay a dividend because that will signal like the end of like the growth era. At least that's what their perception is. So these companies, they pay dividends, but they're rather small, only about 1% of their, uh, of their stock price and a very low payout ratio of their profits. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like you're at the maturity stage and there's, they're just making so much money. I mean, maybe they'll wait it out and they'll invest in something. I mean, like Facebook's taking it, Facebook's an example of a company that's finally using their cash, but maybe not in the right place with this metaverse thing where they're going to be deploying over half of their future investments into the metaverse. They're the first like big, big player to start actually putting their cash to work. Cause yeah, like you said, Apple, but there are other companies like Google, uh, Microsoft, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, they have these massive cash positions and they're just sitting on loads and loads of cash, loads of cash, loads of cash. And it's looking at like what to do and, um, with, with this cash. Yeah. If you add the top 10 biggest companies in the United States cash positions alone, I'm sure it's well over a trillion dollars just in cash, just sitting on the sideline. So yeah, that's, that's, that's bigger than the GDP of Canada. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. So, uh, I just want to finally ask you about, um, more about Tesla. Like I, I think I read somewhere that they were a data company that they were somehow tracking every car wherever they went. And that was somehow making the money like, and it, and it made me think more about, you know, companies like Facebook, which are actually making their revenue on advertising. And it's in a lot of ways people don't know about, and that's been brought up. Like they're selling your information and this and that. Like, I feel like there's some blind revenue sources in these companies and like Amazon has a $600 million CIA contract. And like, I don't know, like, what do you think about like all these, these kind of backdoor revenue streams? Yeah, that's a debate of ethics you're pretty much getting at. And I think, you know, when you sign over your, you basically are signing over your autonomy when you agree to the terms and conditions of these apps. I mean, if you go through, let's say Facebook's terms and conditions, you can read through it and see exactly what you're, you're permitting them to do. And it's nothing illegal. I mean, it's all legal and it's all agreed to, but you're, you're really selling your information and information is the most valuable commodity. I mean, it's hard to value exactly, but I'm sure that these companies, they all have internal documents that no one sees that, they may value each individual person's information and, and, and rank them. And it's based on your network and your reach and maybe like what you're into and how, you, how you're, you know, you think about it. I'm sure they calculate these kind of turnover ratios where someone posts an article, that person gets X amount of views who reposts another article and that person's online informational value is quite high. Uh, you can't really quantify exactly what you're selling, but of course, when you are using all these apps, quote unquote, for free, obviously it's not really for free. You're just, you're just, you're just giving these companies bucket loads of cheap, cheap, I mean, basically free data for them to just sell to as many ad companies as they possibly can. And then you're just bombarded with constant subliminal messaging all day. And then you can get sucked into these Instagram reels where you just have, you, you sit there for two hours, just scrolling to the next thing. And it, it could be fun, but um, there's, there's paid promotions that you don't even notice. I mean, I wonder how many of these reels are people, you know, the famous people who, who do reels and TikToks, like how many of them are just paid by Facebook or Google? I mean, seriously, to just promote certain things. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting age, but I mean, what are you supposed to do? Like the only other option is you pay a monthly fee 
and they don't have any advertising and they don't have the right to sell your information. But I have a feeling that kind of model wouldn't work well because the information is just so rich and uh, useful that I don't think a social media platform, unless they were just willing to just not make much money and not grow very much would be sustainable to invest like that. Right. Man, thank you so much for coming on and talking. I, I really appreciate these insights. Uh, if anyone wants to learn more from Dante, he's got a website. It's great. It's called deep dive, D E E P dive finance.com ca. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on.